You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you by your Spirit. We come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above all names and that is worthy of all praise. And God, we pray right now, we pray for a a special, powerful, memorable, Lord, revelation of who you are through your word. We pray that your spirit would move, Lord, that your son would be exalted, that we would draw closer to you as our Father, Lord, that we would live out our true identity of who we are in Christ, God, that you would help us, Lord, help us to be men of prayer, to be women of prayer. Help us to be a church that prays, that believes firmly that you are a God who listens, that you are a God who hears, that you are a God who responds and who answers. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do this as we open your word, that you would help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew 6. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisles right now with copies of the Bible. And so you can just raise your hand and they'll put a Bible into, uh, into your hands for you. I want you to picture uh, a dining room table uh, surrounded with uh, loving family members, really close friends. And just, just uh, picture yourself there. Picture the kind of conversation that happens there. A, a meal has been shared and, and coffee has been brought and, 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 and people are nibbling away at what's left of dessert. And there's a conversation happening. A conversation that is, that is beautiful. A conversation that is, uh, that you, where you feel right at home. Uh, no one is using an academic, esoteric vocabulary to try to impress or alienate the people who might not understand what they're saying. No one is trying to sound like someone else. No one is rambling on and on and on and not letting anyone else talk. An elbow would go into the person's chest to say, just knock it off for a second. There's, there's more of us here because it's a family, because you're close friends. And time just goes by. That, that a home, a household, a family, friends gathered around a table, involved in this natural conversation, talking about hurts, talking about hopes, ta- sharing memories, looking forward to the future, all of these things, all around that table. That really is the heart behind this series that we're in right now called A House of prayer. This idea that when we pray to our Father and when we gather as the family of God with our Father, that the prayer, the conversation that happens around the circle, around the table, when we pray, that it would be as organic, as natural as family and friends gathered around a table. And so we're going after Consistent, earnest, passionate prayer 
all for the purpose of us as a church, as individuals and as a community, to be people of prayer, that we would be a house of prayer. And so to help us along in our understanding of what does it mean for us to be in a prayer relationship, not with not just with God our Father, but with one another, with our brothers and sisters. We turn our attention to the Lord's Prayer, really the prayer of prayers. And I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't even, I, I know what this sermon is going to be about. I mean, we used to say this prayer in school. I know this prayer off by heart, you know, hallowed be your name and your kingdom and, and your, your will and, and, and give us our daily bread. I, I, I know this prayer. Well, listen, you might be able to say this prayer, but do you truly know this prayer? Because when Jesus begins in verse 9, when he says, pray then like this. He's not simply telling us words that we're supposed to say with our mouths. This, this prayer is not just something we're supposed to say with our mouths. It's something we're supposed to live with our lives. Prayer is supposed to be coming from our hearts. And unless the themes of this prayer are in our hearts, we need to pray that, this, that, that our hearts would line up with these very words. And so today's message is going to be very simple. We're just going to walk through Jesus' prayer as we get ready as a church family tonight at 7 o'clock to gather for our house of prayer prayer meeting at our ministry center. We're going to, we're going to look closely at this prayer. What Jesus said, pray then like this. And then he begins with the phrase, our Father in heaven. If you're taking notes today, jot this down, that God wants to relate to us. If we are going to grow in our prayer lives, we, if we're going to pray the way Jesus wants us to pray, commands us to pray, pray then like this, we need to pray understanding that we are praying to a God who wants to be in a relationship with us. He says, pray like this, our Father you see, our prayers are not supposed to be mechanical or methodical. They're supposed to be relational. That we are supposed to understand that God is our Father. The word Father is the foundation of Christian prayer. That we are part of God's family. Now I know for many people here, that that. That idea of calling God Father, that's a bit of a stumbling block. You're, you're comfortable with calling God, you know, divine. You're comfortable with, with focusing on his glory. You're fine with calling God your rock, your savior, your redeemer. But you, you, you stutter and stall and stumble a little bit over this idea of Father. Maybe it's because, tragically, you had no relationship with your father. You didn't, you didn't even know him, your, your earthly father. Maybe even more tragically, you knew your earthly father, but sometimes you wish you hadn't because of some things that, that your father did or didn't do. His presence or his absence has, has limited your approach to God as father. Well, Jesus tells us to pray to our Father in heaven. 
And whether the word father is is loaded with good memories, good feelings, positive affirmations, or whether it's, it's filled with really the reliving of a nightmare, we need to look past our earthly father and look to our father who is in heaven. He is, he is above and beyond the, the good fathers and the bad fathers. He is like no other father because he is our father in heaven. You see, Jesus begins this prayer, begins our prayer by looking at our father and looking up above because the focus of our prayer cannot be prayer. The focus of our prayer cannot be us. Our focus must be on God the Father. And we need to understand the cost, the price that was paid so that we would have the privilege of calling God our Father. You see, the reason why we can call God our Father in heaven is because our Father in heaven sent His Son to earth. The New Testament does not describe us generically as children of God. The New Testament describes us, apart from Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, children of wrath. John 8, 44, sons of the devil. That's, that's who we are children of, children of wrath, deserving God's righteous punishment for our sin. Sons and daughters of the devil as we disobey. But God who is in heaven, sent his son to earth to suffer and die on the cross for us. So that although we were children of wrath, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. The punishment that all of us deserve was poured out on him. And that when he rose from the dead, he defeated our deadbeat dad known as the devil. And he has no relationship with us at all anymore. And this is why we can call God our Father. Furthermore, God has sent his Holy Spirit, who is the, the, the spirit of, of adoption into our lives. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. It's the spirit who causes us to say Abba, which is the, the, the Aramaic term translated Father. So we can say our Father in heaven because the Father sent his Son to And really, the Son is inviting us into what He has enjoyed in all of eternity. When He says, our Father, like when He rose from the dead, He says, I am going to my Father and your Father. You see, He's saying, our, He's inviting us into the relationship that He has had for all of eternity. You see, when the Trinity was getting ready for the first Christmas... And when Jesus was going to come to the earth, it's not like they had a planning meeting and said, okay, how are they going to understand how the Trinity works? Oh, I know. We'll use an analogy of Father and Son. That's not how it worked. The Father has always related to Jesus as a son in all of eternity. Before Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel or Seth, before there ever was an earthly father-son relationship, there always was a spiritual father-son relationship. And we, by the Spirit, have been invited into this relationship that Jesus, for all of eternity, had alone enjoyed with the Father. Now he is inviting all of us to enjoy it along with him. 
And not only are we supposed to enjoy it just ourselves personally, it is our Father. It's something that we are supposed to do. Prayer, this prayer, is not intended to be prayed in isolation. You by all means can pray it on your own, but that's not the intention. It says our Father. If you go down to the rest of the prayer in verse 11, give us our daily bread. It's plural. Forgive us our sins in verse 12. Lead us in verse 13, not into temptation. It is a corporate activity. It is a community project. This idea of prayer, we are supposed to come together as brothers and sisters by the Spirit and delight in the fact that God the Son has made us sons and daughters through his atoning work for us on the cross. And so this prayer then begins with our Father in heaven, and then Jesus lays out six requests, six things. He says, pray then like this. Ask for these six things. The first, first three are all about how we relate to God. It's all about relationship. The next three are all about relying on God. But here's three ways that Jesus tells us we should pray and how we relate to him. First and foremost, we need to relate to him in terms of his name, in terms of his Name. I love how we're just saying that he has the name above all names. That's really what hallowed be your name truly means. Uh, that, we don't use hallowed uh, very often in everyday English. It's interesting we're coming up on Halloween, which, which is really just a blending of the phrase hallowed evening. And the word hallowed means to sanctify, to be holy, to set apart. I think our culture has really missed the point on hallowed eve. Don't you think so? I, I, I think that, 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 that bus left the terminal a long time ago. There's nothing hallowed, there's nothing holy about that quote-unquote holiday. But when it comes to God's name, we are supposed to relate to him and his name and treat it as though it were as though it is holy. You see, we were all created for his glory. We were made to, to magnify the glory and the greatness of God. Not for our name. We were, we were made for his name. I love the honesty of the repetition in Psalm 115 verse 1. I'm sure you're familiar with this, with this psalm as, as soon as I quote it, but... But notice where the repetition is. It says, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. You see, notice what has to be repeated, the part about us. Because we're normally like, and the psalm's like, the psalm's like, so we're all like, and it's like, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And are we living, listen, it's, it's one thing to pray, hallowed be your name. Are we living that out? Is this who we truly are, living for his name? Are we living lives? Ultimately, hallowed be your name is about worship. And we all know worship is not simply singing. Worship is how we live our lives for the glory of his name. Hallowed be your name. Then your kingdom come in verse 10. We need to relate to God in terms of his kingdom, that he is our king. And again, this isn't just something we say with our words. If you look in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, 
Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So when we are praying your kingdom come, we're not passively standing aside and saying, okay, God, make it happen. No, when we're praying your kingdom come, we are committing to seeking his kingdom first, making his kingdom our number one priority. Well, what do you mean by kingdom, Ted? Well, let me break it down for you in three words, okay? Rule, reach, return. When, when, when we're talking about God's kingdom, we're talking about God's rule, God's reach, and God's return. So, first and foremost, his rule. That he would rule our lives. He is our king. And so his word is the final authority. That we are supposed to do what he says. When the king decrees something, his citizens are supposed to follow it. And so... God, as I pray your kingdom come, may you rule in my life. Are there things, are there areas of disobedience in my life that I need to line up with what you've commanded, with what you've decreed as king? Would you rule over me? Then reach that as we understand how glorious it is to live a life aligned with our king, to, to, to have God as king of our lives, our heart breaks for the fact that we have neighbors and loved ones and family members. And then across this beautiful globe that God has created, there are nations filled with people that do not yet know. And so we pray that God's kingdom would reach those people. Not, not that God hasn't already not that God doesn't already have authority or isn't already reigning there. He will have dominion from sea to sea. And so he already is reigning. But that individual people would recognize, would bow their knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. That they would make him king of their lives. Not, not, not using the word, the phraseology that we so often use of accepting Jesus into our heart. No, but acknowledging that Jesus is king and, and, and submitting to him, confessing our sins and turning to him. So it's about his rule, it's about his reach, and then ultimately it's about his return. God, may you come soon. When we hear things that politicians are doing in our nation or around the nation or what they're saying or what they're tweeting, Lord, come. Come and make things right. When we hear about things that are happening in our very own uh, neighborhoods, when we read on the news about some of the atrocities that are happening locally and globally, there should well up in us this desire, God, would you come and make things right? Would you bring justice for the oppressed? Would you put the arrogant and the proud in their place? Would your kingdom come, Lord? Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen 15 is, is a verse in, uh, in Scripture. It's also a verse in Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah is not just all about uh, the birth of Christ. It's about the reign of Christ, about the return of Christ. And I say this every year. You've got to find, you've got to find a way. Either you know, on an old record player or on a CD or on your computer, preferably in some sort of concert hall or music auditorium. Get yourself into a chair and hear a choir and orchestra play, perform, sing Handel's Messiah. And, and, and allow the, the, the powerful music and the powerful lyrics that it's all scripture. And think about the fact that thousands of people as a Christmas tradition will go and listen to Handel's Messiah. 
and pay no attention to the, to the fact that this is going to happen. That the kingdom of this world has become, will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And as they listen to the choir sing, and he shall reign forever and ever. They're going to sing it far more beautifully than I'm singing it right now. <laughs> to think about the truth, the, the return. Yes, he's king right now. He's king of our hearts. He's king over all. But there is a time coming. When he will return and bring justice and peace and righteousness. And he will reign forever. His name, his kingdom. And then it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In terms of his will. In terms of his will. And some of you are thinking, okay, finally we're talking about something that I, I want to pray about. I'm always trying to pray about God's will. You know, should I date this person or not date this person? Should I go to this school? Should I go to that school? What kind of a job should I take? What is God's will for my life? Well, we need to be clear that when the Bible talks about God's will, sometimes it is talking about God's plans. But first and foremost, and most often when it talks about God's will, it's not always about his plans. It's about his commands. Because he's king. And his will needs to be done. It needs to be done in our lives. And so don't simply think in terms of, you know, of this particular decision. By all means, bring that before the Lord in prayer. But also, most importantly, we've got to be asking ourselves, God, am I following your moral will, what you have commanded? Am I trusting you and doing what you have called me to do? A Paul Miller, who wrote a brilliant book called The Praying Life, wrote this about the will of God. He said, the greatest struggle of my life is not trying to discern God's will. It's trying to discern and disown my own will. Maybe we need to stop complaining about how we want to know God's will so badly and take an honest look at ourselves and say, what is my will in this situation? What do I really want to see happen? Why am I so upset? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so anxious or so worried? What exactly is my will? Figure out what you want. Ask God to search you and to know you, to figure out what your will is, and then get it on page with his will. Think about... Think about God's will in terms of plans, in terms of you've got a project that you're working on at home or at work, and there's just these continual interruptions. Uh, things are, are just not going, you, you had a deadline, and you've fallen behind, and, and you just, people just keep coming and interrupting you, and, and your, your kids are getting in the way of what you're trying to do, or you hear the footsteps of your boss coming to your cubicle, and you're already behind, and you know that she's going to ask you to do something else, and you're just, you're about to blow up because you just want to get this one thing done. What is your will in that moment? Who's king in that moment? Whose name are you about in that moment? Is it the name that you, 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 you know, is it the kingdom of the checklist? And that you, you said you were going to do it, you wrote it down and so you need to get it done? Is it your own reputation that you don't want to fall behind on a deadline and let someone else down? Whose will am I seeking in traffic? Do you pray a lot in traffic? 
imprecatory prayers maybe? Whose will? God, I'm late. And if I'm late, then people are going to think I'm unreliable. Well, Ted, is this about people thinking that you're faithful or that I'm faithful? Well, Ted, maybe you need to stop trusting in the fact that you have a good reputation of being a reliable person. And maybe you just need to humble yourself and rely on me in this situation. You see, I, sometimes I have, you know, I, I think of myself as, you know, Duncan the despot. And I have dominion over the whole 400 series of highways. And that somehow everyone should just get out of the way of me. You know, and but I, we need to understand that God has, God has a, he has commands and he has a plan. Every lane closure, the placement and speed of every vehicle on every highway is moving exactly how God has chosen for it to move. And am I willing to submit my will or my timeline for God's will and God's timeline? Am I concerned about my name or am I concerned about his name? How about commands? How about when we catch one of our friends gossiping about us? Whose name are we concerned about then? Whose kingdom are we living for then? Because, you know, it's real quick. I mean, that, 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 you just, you broke a command of God. God says you're not supposed to gossip or bear false witness. You gossiped about me. Off with your head. We're pretty quick to assert our kingship in those kind of moments, aren't we? But are we more concerned about our name and that this person has been spreading something about us that's not true? Are we concerned about our name? Are we concerned and compassionate about this person that for whatever reason, whatever motivation, they have broken one of God's commands? That they have used, used the mouth that God has given them to, to spew poison rather than to speak life. Are we concerned about our name and our kingdom? Or are we concerned about his? When our children, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but when our children don't do what we say. Have you ever had that happen? you got to say it. Like, you've, you've seen this. You've seen it happen right, two, three times. I, Four times, five times, I, I have to make the, the, give the same command, the same decree, King Duncan. King Duncan, by the way, dies right away in the beginning of Macbeth, so King Duncan's not a great name. But no one listens to me. And again, am I concerned? What is my will in this moment? To have this peaceful, tranquil home where, where my will is done? Or am I concerned that my children would learn to fear the Lord and to honor their father and mother? Because that, that radically changes. This prayer and living this kind of a life dramatically changes the way that we think about parenting. The way we think about our jobs. The way we think about our free time. The way we think about our relationships. See, it's not just a prayer that we say with our mouths. It's a prayer that we live with our lives. We want to relate to God. 
that every circumstance in our lives is in relationship to God. Understanding that he's sovereign and has a plan for everything. That's why it says, pray without ceasing. Because praying without ceasing, praying is relating to God. So viewing everything that's happening through the lens of God is with me, God is here, God has a plan, and God helped me. So everything that we do must be done in relationship to God. Our prayer life begins, it's based on our relationship with him as father. God wants to relate to us. Make note of this, the next, the next, three, the next three prayer requests. God wants, to, God wants us to rely on him. He wants us to relate to him and he wants us to rely on him. We live in such a self-reliant culture. Just more and more. We don't, we don't ask our friends to come over and help us anymore. We just try to look things up on the internet. We try to fix things around the, around the home just sort of on our own. We used to, we used to get someone to, uh, to bag our groceries for us. And we would sort of stand there. It was kind of awkward. Maybe we felt guilty. Or we, just, we weren't comfortable with it. So that's not a thing anymore. We're just supposed to bag our own. And now, we're supposed, and, then, and now we're supposed to even determine how many bags we're supposed to have. And... and it's all, it's, it's all about us. It's all about self-reliance. I mean, the, the, the cash register, they're an expert in how many bags. Why are they asking me? Because they expect me to be self-reliant. You used to have to, you, we, we didn't even trust ourselves to pump our own gas. Someone used to come out a little, you'd drive over the strip, a little bell would ring. Someone would come and run it up being like, I got this for you. And then, and then they'd fill it up. Now, no, self-serve, self-reliant. I don't need anyone. We live in this increasingly self-reliant world. But God wants us to rely on him. Jesus told us that we're to pray like this. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. We're supposed to pray for his provision. Rely on him for his a provision. We're supposed to ask him for daily bread. Now, I think there was some, some sort of like broken telephone situation where the message got lost because what I'm seeing in the church happening in the city of Brampton and especially on television is it's not, I think someone must have misheard something because it's not give us today our daily bread, it's give us today Mercedes Benz. This idea that prayer exists, that, that we aren't God's servants, and he's not our king, and it's not about his name, but that he is supposed to help us build our kingdom, and that we're supposed to speak these words of faith and conjure up so much faith that we somehow leverage God, force him into giving us what we want, which ultimately is not him, it's not his glory, his name, his kingdom, his will. We want our will. Loved ones, it, it's, it's pretty easy to point out the the absolute absurdity of the prosperity gospel on television and in many churches in Brampton and Mississauga and beyond. It's real easy to point that out. It's a lot harder for us to understand that there's a prosperity preacher inside of all of us. There's a way for us of thinking that if we do certain things, God should bless us. There's a way of us thinking that we are entitled to certain things where Jesus breaks it down and says, give us today our daily bread. I think so often, you know, we might have turned off the prosperity preacher, but there's still something. There's something in us. There's some things that we want beyond our daily bread. There's some things that we're longing for. It might be, it might be a relationship. It might be a successful career. It might be uh, more bread. It might be more, more money. But we know that we're really not supposed to pray about that. 
And so we don't pray about it. We don't pray about it, but we think about it, and we work for it, and we long for it, and then what ends up happening is our prayer life gets separated from our real life. And I wonder if guilt about the whole daily bread thing prevents us from praying about these other things that we want. And I want to ask you, what if this week you took those things that you're longing for and you prayed them, you poured your heart out, you got out the Lord's prayer and brought it before the Lord and say, God, I want this thing. And then started to think about that thing and pray about that thing in terms of Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I wonder how many of us, at the end of praying about that for a week, would think, you know what? I don't need that thing. I wonder if how many others of us, we might not be, you know what? I, I still feel like I need it, but my whole perception on it has changed. I still want it, but I want it for different reasons. I want it for the glory of God's name. I want it to be able to spread his kingdom. And I'm not holding God hostage for it. I'm trusting in his will, that he has a good plan for me. So yes, I do want it. That longing is still inside my heart. But I am praying, your will be done, God. You see, we need to bring everything before the Lord. Just because it says, you know, Give us today our daily bread. Doesn't mean that we should be asking for anything else. I also wonder, what would it look like if, 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 we, if we assess the fact that we are so abundantly wealthy, living in North America, in Brampton, in Canada, in 2017, if we actually took an assessment and said, what does daily bread actually look like for me? What do I actually need? And, we, and we, we took what God has already provided for us, count that as daily bread. What if we took everything else, everything else that God is, not that we're asking him for, but that he's already given us. And if we brought it before the Lord and said, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. What would local church budgets look like? What would missions giving look like? What would local compassion outreach ministries look like if Christians took an honest assessment of what daily bread is and then filtered everything else through the lens of God's kingdom, God's name, God's glory, God's will? What if we did that? God wants us to rely on him for provision, not just that he would give us, not, we don't just rely on him to give us things, but we rely on him, listen, to steward the things he's already given us. You might think, well, I, need, I don't need to pray, give us today our daily bread, because I, I have bread. It's in my pantry. I got, I, I've got my daily bread. I've got, I've got, I've got a loaf. I've got, I've got bread for the week. Well, listen, maybe you need to think about stewarding what God has entrusted to you. He wants to relate to us in terms of provision, also in terms of pardon. As, as, as much as we need bread in the same sentence, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. We need forgiveness as badly as we need food. As we also have forgiven our debtors. 
You see, no relationship can survive without forgiveness. Pastor Chris mentioned this class that he's teaching. I highly recommend it. If you're engaged, dating, if you have been married for a year or 10 years or 30 years, this idea of understanding marriage. You know, Lince and I do some premarital counseling every now and again. I'm performing a wedding this afternoon. I get real nervous when I hear a couple say stuff like, you know, we're just so in love. We, we never fight. We never fight. We're just like, interesting. You see, there's no hope for a marriage without forgiveness. There's no hope for siblings without forgiveness. There's no hope for friends. There's no hope for a church without forgiveness. There's no hope for an ongoing, vital, life-giving relationship with God without forgiveness. Now, some of you might be asking the question, this might have been bothering you for a long time. So Jesus says that we're, give us today our daily bread, it's daily bread, and then, and then forgive us our debts. Is that something we're supposed to do daily? Is forgiveness something that's supposed to be ongoing? And the answer is yes, because it is an ongoing relationship. But then you might still be scratching your head saying, but didn't God, when I became a Christian, when I placed my faith in Jesus, didn't he forgive my sins once and for all, past, present, and future? And the answer is yes. Well, then why do I need to keep asking God for forgiveness? Well, in order to understand that, you need to understand two very important, very interconnected, very interconnected, but very distinct theological concepts. You need to understand justification, and you need to understand adoption. These two things are related, but they're not the same. Justification is a legal term. It pictures God as a judge. And we are in the dock. We're we're standing in the place of the accused. And there's so much evidence against us. But God justifies us. He declares us innocent. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just bear our sin. It's not just that our sin went on Jesus, but that his righteousness was given to us. So God throws all of the evidence out. All of the accusations, all of the facts of our guilt are thrown out of court because now God sees our lives as righteous as though we had lived Christ's 33 years of sinless perfection. And so God is a just God. Now that we're found in Christ, he declares us innocent. We are justified. And that's once for all. That's past, present, and future. But then God puts down the gavel, steps down from the bench, takes off his judge's robe and says, okay, now we're leaving the courthouse and now we're going to go into this room right now and we're going to sign adoption papers. And then after that, I'm going to show you your room where you're staying because you're now part of my family. You're living in my household and then you're going to sit around my table. You see, the reason why God justified us is because he wanted to adopt us. And those two things are interconnected, but they're distinct. God wants to relate to us as father, not as judge. He said you are justified, you are innocent. He no longer ever wants to relate to you as judge. He's done with that. He's stepped off the bench. The robe is off, the gavel has been set down. He is no longer your judge. He is now full-time dad. He's your father. That's why he made that judgment. That's why he sent his son. So that he could relate to you as father. So, in every relationship, 
there needs to be forgiveness because although we have been, although we have been set free from sin, we still find ourselves sinning, sinning against God, a God who we love. And when we confess and repent our sin, we're not coming before God as judge who we're afraid of. We're coming before God as our Father who we love. And we need to understand this because Satan, who's a liar and called in the book of Revelation, the accuser of the brethren, and who was the, the prosecuting attorney who was trying to say that we're guilty and that God shouldn't justify us. He sneaks into the courtroom and, and, and starts yelling out the window. We've already left the courtroom. We're in God's house now. But he holds up the gavel. And he's pretending to be the voice of God saying, you're still guilty. And that's not true. I still want to relate to you as judge. That's not true. God has done being your judge. And he is 100% focused now on being your father. And because of that, do you understand why forgiveness on a daily basis is so important? Because no relationship can survive without forgiveness. If if, if one of my four sons were to sin against me or to offend me, they would come to me and ask for forgiveness. They don't come to me thinking that if this doesn't go well, I'm going to be an orphan. (laughs) That never enters into their mind. They, they are confident in their sonship. And because they're so confident in their sonship, because they're overwhelmed by the amazing love of God that he would justify us in order to adopt us, that of course we ask God for forgiveness on a daily basis. Loved ones, ultimately we don't ask God for forgiveness because we need to. We do it because we want to. Not because we're afraid of God as judge, but because we love him as our father. And then when we truly understand that, when we truly understand the gospel, then we're able, then we need to pray about this as well, as, as we also have forgiven our debtors, that we would have the strength, that we would believe the gospel enough to be able to extend gospel grace to other people. And then lastly, protection. Protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That God would protect us from the world that he would protect us from Satan, that he would, in fact, protect us from ourselves, from our flesh, and that he would deliver us from evil, not lead us into temptation. Now, if you turn over to chapter 4, verse 1, it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And so how can we pray, lead us not into temptation, when we see the Spirit leading Jesus into temptation? What, what, what does it mean? How, how, can we be, how can we be asking God to, to, to do that? To, are we asking for our lives to be easy? Are we asking that we would have no conflict, that there would be no pressure, that there would be no stress, that, that nothing in this world would be alluring to us to turn away from God? You see, there's a difference between being led into temptation to stay and being led into temptation to get through it. You see, temptation is not a destination. The people of Israel were tested in the wilderness, but the wilderness was never the destination, was it? It was the promised land. And yes, God may, according to his plan, according to his will, allow us to be in situations where temptation could happen. That's not what lead us not into temptation is all about. Not that that would never happen. 
but that in those moments, God would deliver us from evil. That, that even if we found ourselves in temptation, that we would be found, as God leads us into it, that he would lead us out of it so that we would get through it for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that God says that God always provides a way out, that he is faithful uh, to do that. And so this is why we need to, and, and this, is, this is why it's so crucial for us to pray. What is the biggest temptation for us as a church? One of them is self-reliance. The temptation of thinking that we can do things on our own, that we don't need God's pardon because we're already good people, that we don't need God's provision because I already have everything that I need. But to pray, God, protect me from being about my name. Protect me, God, from being about my glory or my kingdom or enforcing my will. So does this prayer describe your life? Because this isn't something we're just supposed to say with our mouths. It's something we're supposed to live with our lives. We're going to live it out together as we bring these requests before the Lord tonight at 7 o'clock at our ministry center. Join us there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to live lives that are characterized by an intimate relationship with you and a desperate reliance on you. And so God, I pray that we would be men and women of prayer. I pray that we would be a church that is devoted to prayer, that believes firmly in its power and that prioritizes the corporate gathering of your people to seek your face in the name of your son for your glory. God, we thank you for the price that was paid in order for us to call you Father. And as we sing this song right now, Lord, I pray that we would be filled with awe and wonder, that we can be brought before your throne, that we can be brought into your family, that we can call you our Father in heaven because you sent your Son to earth. So draw us close to you, we pray. In this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.